Hi, thanks for joining us. You're listening to Tell It From Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, with the goal of engaging the city and impacting the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's message is from our executive pastor, Dr. Tim Black. If you want to know more about Calvary Baptist Church and its ministries, head over to www.cbcnyc.org. Before, before we get started, let's, let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to dig into your word. I pray this morning, God, that you would use this psalm to stir something in us about you and about your word and about the beauty of your son. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. So the title of my sermon this morning is God of the Nations. Um, There must have been uh, many joyful moments in the life of King David. But one of the most exciting must have been when God brought, through David, brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. So I would like you just to try to picture that scene with me this morning. Um, Imagine that we're in Jerusalem and that there are thousands of people lining the streets. You have the sound of horns and cymbals. Thimbles, I don't know that they make any sound. Sounds of horns and cymbals as people are cheering and screaming and delighted to see the ark of God coming back to the city. Um, You can imagine that there's just this massive outpouring of noise and cheering and choirs and orchestras and everything that's happening. And in the middle of it, King David is dancing with all of his might which then embarrasses his wife, which probably a few of us have done as well over the years. But David was dancing because he was just so joyful in the Lord and what God was doing. He was so excited that he then penned a poem that was the foundation of where this is written in 1 Chronicles 16. So that poem is there. And that poem then becomes the heart of Psalm 96 and becomes a psalm that we're going to look at this morning. And it's just a joyful song um, looking to a prophecy of a future time when God will judge the entire world in righteousness. This is a joyful, exuberant psalm. And maybe it's a bit too joyful if we think about the world around us this morning. It's difficult to imagine how a psalm written so joyfully can actually consider what we see around us. Things are broken. Five minutes of the news on any day of the week is a quick reminder that this psalm just seems a bit out of touch with reality. The world is a broken place. The world we know it is not the world described here. So I think the question for us to grapple with this morning is, Can we get to that space? And if so, how do we do that? I do think the answer for us is found in this psalm this morning. And there's a series of invitations for us as we get started. So the heart of the psalm is around this great theme. And it's found in verses 4 and 5. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. 
He is to be feared above all gods. The Lord made the heavens. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Everything here points to the greatness of God. So let's unpack this psalm this morning with just three threads that I'd like to follow. The first is sing. And if you look at that psalm, it's sing, 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 right? The second is summon or ascribe. And then the third is rejoice. But it's rejoicing in judgment. So first, we're commanded to sing. It's not just once, but it's over and over because it's such an important theme for us. 1 Chronicles 16.9 says, Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of his wondrous works. Let's do a quick survey of scripture. And a lot of these are going to be in the Psalms, but it's just a command to sing for us. Psalm 100, verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Psalm 105, 2. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Psalm 147, 1. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. And then we'll step into the New Testament. Ephesians 5.19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Even the Lord sings. Did you know that? Zephaniah 3.17 the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I wonder what the singing of God sounds like. It's got to be amazing, right? Why is scripture so insistent that we sing? I don't actually know just to be honest. But I think there's something about singing that stirs us as humans, created in God's image. When Leslie and I and William, our son who's with us this morning, lived in South Africa, I was always puzzled by the fact that Africans at the very bottom of the African continent were excited about English premier football leagues. It always blew my mind. Um, then I discovered that football, or we would call it soccer, is by far the most popular game in the world. Those of you that have lived overseas or are soccer fans would know this. Manchester United has 700 million fans globally. And there are 1.6 billion plus soccer fans in the world. This is truly a global sport. And if you watch a match for any length of time, you'll hear each side sing some of the most bizarre songs, most of which have lyrics that are inappropriate for church this morning, or actually for anywhere. I mean, they're just, they're just awful. But why do they sing? They sing to communicate, often with intent to humil humiliate, um, but always in a way that creates unity, a feeling of camaraderie, Something stirs inside of them when they sing these unsavory songs. There's a similar feeling of unity and patriotism when singing the national anthem for us or songs from our own culture or heritage. 
I don't know what it is, but something stirs within us. If you are really engaged when we sing together on a Sunday morning, you know what this feels like, right? It's gathering together and singing in worship. So why do we sing? There is something in our DNA as people created in God's image that has this hardwired within us. We sing, and we're commanded to sing. We're commanded to sing and worship God because that is what is best for us. God doesn't need our praise. However, there's something about how humans are wired that makes singing so important for us to do. C.S. Lewis describes it like this. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, except where intolerable adverse circumstances interfere. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling us to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. If I'm enjoying a beautiful sunset, I want to share it with Leslie or our sons or our friends. And if I find some interesting music, I want to see what William thinks, my son William. It completes my enjoyment by sharing it with others. Lewis is helping us recognize that we are called to worship and share our delight with others because that is what is best for us. It helps us to complete our enjoyment. We summon the nations to join us in worship because knowing and understanding God is what is best for them. And it completes the enjoyment of God for us. God is not telling us to worship out of any lack in himself. But he does it because it's best for us to do so. We declare together that our God is great. He's glorious. He's magnificent. Not because God craves worship, but because it's what we need the most. We sing because it stirs us toward him. So we sing and worship because we need to be caught up in something that is so much bigger than we are, way beyond the limits of human existence. Singing that is focused on exclaiming the beauties of Christ will draw you into the most important activity in the universe. Verse 4 tells us why this is so. He is great and greatly to be praised. The Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are his sanctuary. So we're commanded to sing throughout Scripture because it's important for us to do so. There's something that happens when we express in song in a way that's better than anything else to display the majesty and splendor of God in the beauty of Jesus. We sense this when we worship together. Secondly, we are called to summon. The word ascribe is a bit strange, right? We don't really use that word much, but it means that we confirm or verify. 
we give an account. The old English word here would likely be bestow. So in this instance, it means to see, understand, acknowledge the glory that God already has. We're not giving God glory, but we recognize that he is glorious. We acknowledge that there is glory due to his name because of who he is. And this is a mission call for the peoples, for the nations, to recognize who God is. Summon the nations to join the people of God in ascribing glory to God and singing praise to him. Verse 7 just says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. If we refer back to the first verse that says, Sing to the Lord all the earth, we're not just telling the earth the facts about the greatness and glory of God. But we bid for them to join us in praising him. We're calling for their conversion. All the nations must bow before the one true God of Israel, whom we know now is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think glory is an important word for us to understand. It comes from the Hebrew word kavot, which has to do with weight or heaviness. God has no beginning and no end. Everything depends upon him. He depends upon nothing. Therefore, compared to God, everything is weightless. It's smoke. It's vapor. It's just a mist. Relationships, possessions, jobs, they're weightless. If you make anything out to be more important than God, you're investing in things that are just like a puff of smoke. It's easy for us to place weight on other things or people that are not meant to have this power over us. But if God is not the most important thing in your life, you're not living a safe life, but instead relying on something or someone that is without weight. You're a goner. The nations, they're placing their beliefs in gods who are worthless idols. The, the word is actually they're no gods. If you join them in this, you're opening yourself up to destruction. There's a scene in Lord of the Rings. Um, actually, when the book was first written, I'm not going to talk about the scene. When the book was first written, J.R.R. Tolkien received some information back from people that had read the book. And one of the responses was quite an interesting one. The woman said to him, look, I understand that this is a fantasy. But the fact that the ring was able to destroy the whole kingdom at the end of the book just made no sense to me. Even the thing is a fantasy, but how can that possibly be that a ring would destroy Sauron? If you don't know what I'm talking about, you'll have to read the books. It's about 2,000 pages, so have fun. But it's amazing, okay? His response was fantastic. Tolkien said the ring of Sauron is only one of the various mythical ways of treating the placing of one's life or power in some external object, which is thus exposed to capture or destruction with disastrous results to oneself. So, that's end quotes. If you fall in love with someone, that's a source of great joy. And it, it is. It's going to be certainly a source of great joy. And if you break off with that person... It's going to be a loss of joy, and it might take you a while to recover. It's sad, and it's hard, and it's normal for us to feel this way. 
But if you cannot get over it, that year after year, you're still in that same place. You've placed too much weight on that person. That's what Tolkien would say to us this morning in the example of Sauron. So, this summons is a reminder that we're made for so much more than we can even imagine. Our God is a creator God with weight, with kavot. The only thing that has weight. He's worthy of praise, and we're calling the nations to join us in worship of the God who has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. When verse 2 says to tell of his salvation from day to day as God's people, we know that we can see clearly now what David only saw as a shadow when he was dancing with all of his might before the Lord. We know that David's greater son, Jesus, brought salvation to all of God's people. When he died on a cross, demonstrating that the kavot, the weight of God, the weight of his glory must be upheld. Jesus died because we trampled the glory of God. And because of his great love for us, Christ died for us. He lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. He did it for us. Finally, we are to rejoice in judgment. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the earth, the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. That's Psalm 96, just the tail end of this passage that we're looking at this morning. It seems counterintuitive that people would rejoice in the judgment of God. Doesn't that sound strange? The Bible continually says that nature, the heavens and the earth, give glory to God way better than people do. Although all of creation is broken by sin, created things worship God as they perform the things that they were created to do. When a flower opens in the spring, it's doing exactly what God created it to do. And it's displaying His glory in a way that we, as sometimes rebellious people, fail to do. Harbor seals play and frolic and eat and mate and swim and do all of the things that they were created to do. Nature, in this passage, is being called to tell the human race to give glory to God. Humans worship, but often we don't worship God. We worship idols. Everybody worships, but I guess the question for us this morning is, what is it that you're worshiping? In 2005, the writer and professor David Foster Wallace gave a remarkable speech at Kenyon College, where Wallace, who was not a Christian, said there is actually no such thing as atheism. He went on to explain, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Something gives you purpose in life, and that is what you worship, even if you don't call it worship. 
If it's not God you're worshiping, you are worshiping your idol. You're no God. It's a vapor. It's weightless, and it will destroy you. So don't just declare his glory to the nations, and don't just summon them in joining, uh, in, in join, to join in ascribing glory to him, but warn them that they must do that because they are depending on false gods, and judgment is coming. Verse 5 says, All the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Verse 10, Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Verse 13, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. In other words, when he says, sing to the Lord all the earth and declare his marvelous works among all peoples, and he is to be feared above all gods and tremble before him all of the earth and all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, he really means all. The God of the Psalms lays claim to the allegiance of every people, all of them, in all their incredible diversity of culture and religion. In a famous quote, Abraham Kuyper says the following, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Tim Keller talks about this quote in his book, Every Good Endeavor. He says, I fear that in its journey from my eyes to my heart, the quotation from Kuiper can be subtly rewritten so as to read, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of my time of personal devotions and church going over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. And frankly, I like to keep a controlling interest in my church going. Keller goes on to say, Christ is the origin and destiny of every object you have ever seen, every person you have ever heard or encountered, and every idea you have ever contemplated. Without his express, immediate, and personal sustaining at this very instant, the objects you see in front of you right now would cease to exist before you could finish hearing this sentence, and you would not outlast them. He is the past, the present, in the future of everything and everyone you will ever touch, see, hear, smell, or taste, and of many more that you will never know existed. Furthermore, God's plan for the whole universe, including you, is to bring it all under Christ's rule. Do not, the psalm implies, leave out any nation, any people, any family. All of them must convert to the true and living God, and abandon all of their other gods. All religions do not lead to God. That is an impossibility in its logic. We cannot let any unloving trend of religious plurality under the guise of just getting along make us shrink back from the loving work of calling every people under every religion to repent and ascribe all glory to the one and only true and living God. We were made for this. When you confess Jesus as Lord of the universe, you sign up for significance beyond all of your wildest dreams. I mean this for businessmen and women, homemakers, students, and all walks of life, retired or working. John Piper writes, To belong to Jesus is to embrace nations for which he died and which he will rule. 
Your heart was made for this. And there will always be a serious or mild sickness in your soul until you embrace this global calling. A couple of quick points about judgment, and then I'll close. The striking thing for most of us is how these verses look forward to God's judgment joyfully. It's striking because we usually think of the judgment of God quite differently. We've been taught to have an acute sense of sin and to be thankful that we will be spared God's judgment because of the death of Christ on our behalf. But as C.S. Lewis points out, the ancients lived in a world where judges usually needed to be bribed. And right judgment was exceedingly hard to come by, especially for weak, poor, or disadvantaged persons. In such a climate, the disadvantaged did not fear judgment, but rather they longed for it. Because it meant a day when evil would be punished, and those who did the right thing would be vindicated. Why is Judgment Day exciting? Do you know what Judgment Day is? It's God showing up to bring complete equity and fairness. No injustices will be left unaddressed. How is this good news? It's good news for two reasons. First, creation will be made new. You realize that the reason the world is broken is that sin is our constant companion. Genesis, Genesis 3 tells us that when sin entered the world through disobedience, things have been off ever since. Not just off, but we turned away from God. Sin is the reason for suffering, so when God comes back and puts the world right, the world will be renewed. The trees will sing for joy. Can you imagine? This is such an enticing glimpse of what will happen when the world is made right. Right now, the world is groaning. Romans 8 tells us that it's in bondage, groaning for liberation from death and decay. It will be unbelievable. It will be incredible. Look forward to Judgment Day. Someday, everything will be right. We groan and we yearn for this. This is the first thing. The second thing, you can know that there will be joy and that Judgment Day is good news if you know that you will stand firm on that day. The reason that it seems counterintuitive that we'll be excited about Judgment Day is that we know that we cannot live up to God's standards, let alone our own standards. If there isn't a Judgment Day, there is no hope for the world. But if there is a Judgment Day, what hope is there for you and me? God's most amazing act of salvation is that Jesus, his son, stepped into human history and took the judgment that we deserved so that we could be made right with God. The death of Jesus paid for our rebellion. He took judgment day upon himself, which means that if we know him, we can look forward to judgment day with joy. He set aside his glory. He set aside his chavot and bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. If you haven't committed your life to Jesus, and I don't mean just that you believe that he exists, 
but that you put your life in his hands. Don't wait. This judgment day will be glorious, but it's only glorious if you have a relationship and know the judge. If you'd like to find out what that would be like, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, talk to, one, talk to me, talk to one of the elders, talk to one of the deacons here. We'd love to show you what that means. Judgment day will be glorious, but only if you know the judge. Let's pray. Father, you are the only thing in the universe that has weight. Everything that we sometimes chase after, Lord, is just mist. It's just puff. There's nothing. And God, I ask this morning that you would help us to see you in a way that impresses upon us the weight of who you are and what you have done. We worship you this morning, God, and ask that you would Use this psalm to drive some things deep into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit cbcnyc.org slash give or call us at 212 975 0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to tell it from Calvary.